All right, all right. Well, before we get going here, I, uh, Randy alluded to it, but we have had uh, national staff meetings for the last couple of days. We're going to have our national board with links coming in. Uh, for those of you who don't know what links is, links uh, we have these kind of living temples that we built. Some some people call them Bible studies. We prefer not to do that. Not that that's not what we are, but in some ways we just want some kind of shining light behind these. This is golf communities. That makes sense in the desert because if you haven't noticed. We're kind of into golf around here. There's golf and tennis. Mrs. Evangelist, I know she does. Tennis, pickleball, golf, hiking, biking, all that good stuff. But golf is kind of the centerpiece. And so about 30 of these in the desert. And we're, we're, the vision is to have 1,000 across the country. So we have, we have a new kind of presence in the Northeast for the first time in Atlanta with Dennis Darville. And we just hired some guys, Jose Alvarez, who was, who was here this morning. I'm having, oh, just go ahead and stand up, stand up. Uh, Links staff and board stand up. Would you? Would you? <clears throat> They're seeing each other. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Now let me ask you a question. If you're part of a Links Fellowship, would you stand up real quick? Would you stand up? Come on, come on, stand up. Are you seeing what I'm talking about? Love it. Now, if you're not part of the Lynx Fellowship, would you please exit to stay? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. I mean, look, we are, we're an outpost church. We've been talking about that for years. We are centered around what goes out there. People are getting baptized in swimming pools and it's like Beverly Hillbillies, swimming pools and movie stars, right? I mean, people are getting baptized out there. There's a, people call and say, well, somebody has given their life to Jesus in one of our groups, one of our outposts. What should we do? I said, baptize them. He said, why do you do that? I said, you take them and you put them in the water and then you bring them back out. That's all you got to do. And, uh, and, and that, of course, we help them walk through that a little bit and what that means and the significance of that. But a lot of that is happening out here. And then we come on Sunday and we do what? We rejoice and we celebrate and we're with like-minded people. That doesn't mean if, you, if you're here this morning or even watching on television that you, can't, that you can't be kicking the tires on this thing, trying to do your spiritual due diligence to figure out whether that there is a God and who is Jesus and some of these important questions. But a lot of this, we talk about it, but we're, we want to be out. We want to be out there doing things, engaging people, loving people as Christ would have loved people. I am so persuaded that Jesus is beginning to be a big part of this valley. Uh, I think I had a Jesus encounter the other day at Ralph's supermarket. No, I'm serious. I did. In fact, I'm gonna, I took a picture of it. Let me show it to you. I took a picture at the supermarket here. Uh, if they can pull that up. Pete, where are you, Pete? Come on now. There you go. How to recognize when Jesus has been in your grocery store. <laughs> I'm just telling you, the water has been turned into wine. So I, you know, you do what you can. You do what you can. Thank you, Jim Smith, for sending that to me. Anyway, he sent that to me. So uh, we should probably pray. What do you say? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time with you today. Lord, we want to engage your spirit. We want to try to understand this parabolic teaching that you're doing in Luke 18 and trying to just encourage us with this. I had a lot of feedback last week, Lord, that they were encouraged by your parable. And we're going to finish that story, that parable this morning, and see what the implications are for our life and how we might actually, well, be revolutionized by what you say about reality and pull us out of the doldrums and the discouragement that can so easily creep in. Father, I pray that if there are discouraged people, and many are, 
and within the sound of my voice that your, your spirit will speak to them in profound ways and help them move closer. As my friend Randy Wolf, who's on our board as well, said, just put, your, just put your flag a little bit closer to the throne, a little bit closer to the throne each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to reread this passage, and then we're going to look at the, the rest of the story. Again, as Paul Harvey would say, Luke 18 chapter 18, verse 1, verse 1. Now Jesus was telling them a parable. Why was he doing this with this particular parable? To show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, I think in a grand sense, there are places in my life, as I was confessional to you last week, that I kind of lost heart. I mean, I told you about the letter that I wrote to a close friend of mine, and I wrote it to him in 1998, and I, and I signed it, and I said, I'm going to give you this on the day that you receive Jesus, and just know that I will have been praying for you until that happened. And I thought that would happen within a few months of writing that letter. That was 1998. That was 25 years ago. It's easy to lose heart, isn't it? It's just easy to lose heart. What things that you've been praying about have you lost heart regarding? I, I'm asking you that question. Maybe a son or a daughter or a friend or a spouse or somebody who just doesn't quite get Jesus yet. They, they're hearing it, but they're not really hearing it with their inner spirit, and you know that, and you just lost hope, or physical ailment. I have a number of you I know that are suffering from cancer and are suffering from uh, back disability which is debilitating I mean my heart breaks for you I've been there I've been there and it's easy to lose heart I remember being in the hospital and once just so discouraged I just started crying in the middle of the night and Laura was in the hospital room and she just you know with my foot issue and when I was up it wheeled me up in a wheelchair and all that that was discouraging beyond words and and I'll be honest with you I did lose heart at various moments is this ever going to change I never lost my faith but it's easy to lose your faith if you're a little wobbly already, and it's easy just to say, well, I don't know that he's out there. And Jesus told them a parable to encourage them to pray at all times and not to lose heart, not to quit, not to quit. I'm gonna bring my friend Dennis Darville up here. Some of you know Dennis, come on up. Um, my friend Dennis is, uh, uh, for those of you links, he's, uh, he's our new senior editor since we lost our beloved Jeff Hopper. Uh, he's in Atlanta, he's been a pastor, he's one of the VPs at Southeastern Seminary, and we have, he's now hired Joey and his wife Jamie, and now they're just starting in Charlotte, who also they met at the seminary. But that's the beautiful kind of cool part of the story, and Dennis was in the golf business for a long time, and was a national sales manager for various big companies that you would know, and all that. And now he's finally fought, heard the Lord's voice and come to Lynx, finally heard the Lord's voice. <laughs> But prior to that, there was a, an incredibly discouraging, well, 14 years, and some of you will have remembered his son, his son, Jonathan, and Jonathan was, well, he was an Armani model, I mean, he was traveling the world, he was in Italy, and he was here, and he was there, and, and uh, he got his looks from his mom, and, uh, and it's just incredible, a young man, and I mean, just incredible young man. And then for 14 years, he shriveled up to about 100 pounds, and lived in his parents' house, and, and my question was, did you ever lose heart, and how do you get through that? What? Well, just Dennis, share with us a little bit. Yeah, hey, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. I remember being with you last year. I believe y'all were in the 
a theater. This is much nicer. <laughs> I like this. Um, so Jeff called me a week or two ago and asked me just to speak briefly on on this very issue, and which is not easy to do. I, I know he was picking on you about being brief, but I was actually his first pastor. Pastors struggle to do anything briefly. <laughs> so I, I get that. Um, so yeah, our, our son Jonathan, uh, my second second born, uh, was always just the healthiest kid in the world. Uh, uh, really good looking kid, but his heart heart is bigger than his looks. He's just a, a great young man. So he moves to New York City after college. And for some of you, this will be a bit of a repeat, but he gets there and his career really takes off. He's traveling all over the world. He's a part of Tim Keller's church there, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian. And he's just doing great. He's leading Bible study for actors and models and so he'd been there for about three years or so, and he calls me one day. At the time, I was vice president of a seminary on the East Coast, and he calls me one day, and he said, Dad, something's terribly wrong with me, and I, I'm, I'm really scared. So I put him on a plane, flew him home, and at the time, he, he's 6'2". At the time, he weighed 175 pounds. He was a really, really fine basketball player. And Leanne and I watched him go from a 175-pound young man to 108 pounds uh, in just a short amount of time. And that began a 14-year journey trying to find answers. Um, I don't know how many doctors, but lots and lots of doctors, lots and lots of specialists all over the country just looking for answers. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And So I remember, I, just, a, just as a quick departure point for this morning, I, I knew things were bad, and Lee and I were very, very scared. Uh, I sort of knew how to pray. I've, I'm 66, you know, and I've been in and around various kinds of ministry for, well, since I was 21. So um, when the Lord saved me, I, I you know, fell in love with him. I was learning a great deal, but I never really had a consistent and really rich and meaningful prayer life. But I knew things were getting bad, and I knew that we had to really get serious about prayer. And on one particular evening, I, I remember we were living on a lake uh, outside of Wake Forest, North Carolina. And so we've been married 42 years, and I usually wake up around 3 a.m. and roll over, and my wife has always been there at 3 a.m. I just roll over, and there she is. And I, you know, she's just there. And then I go back to sleep. On this particular evening, I roll over and she's not there. And so it was a surprise to me. Where's my wife? 3 a.m. and where's my bride, you know? So I got up and started roaming around the house, only to find my wife curled up in the fetal position on the bathroom floor, just praying and crying and weeping and seeking the Lord with all her heart. We need answers. Yeah, we need answers. And I just got on the floor with her and curled up there and cried with her and prayed with her. And at that point, I knew I had to get really serious about prayer. And I'm, I was telling all our colleagues this past week, I was diagnosed years and years ago with ADHD. In fact, I am the poster child for ADHD. 
Just look it up in the dictionary. You'll see my face, I promise you. So prayer became very, very, just very hard for me. I was very restless, easily distracted, till one day through a conversation with a friend, he said something, and in just in a moment, I realized what I needed. I needed motion, and so I began, I don't know how long it's been now, eight or nine, ten years ago, I just realized that if I'm walking and I stay in motion, I can really pray. So I have all the gear, summer, winter, fall, spring. No matter what the weather is, I get out and I walk and I pray. And my starting place with prayer, again, after many years of being in the ministry, was simply, Lord, even, even as the disciples come to Jesus in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, when you say, Lord, teach me to pray or teach us to pray, you're implicitly admitting you don't know how to pray, even if you know something about prayer right? In other words, we'll spend the rest of our lives being able to say to the Lord, Lord, teach me to pray because there's so much more about prayer that I don't know. So I start virtually every morning when I'm walking and praying with, Lord, teach me more about prayer today. Teach me something deeper about prayer. Holy Spirit, come Hmm. and show me how to pray. I don't know. As Paul says in Romans, I don't know how to pray or we don't know how to pray as we are, but the Holy Spirit helps our Does anybody remember our weakness, right? Because he knows the very thoughts of God. He searches the mind, the very thoughts of God, and then he will inspire you and show you how to pray. I just want to say a a couple more things to you this morning. The enemy of the church fears nothing more than an individual believer or a church that understands the potency of prayer and then commits to consistent, fervent, and righteous prayer. The enemy fears nothing more than a people that know how to pray and are committed to it. When you get to that place that you're that serious about prayer, you'll begin to realize that God is indeed there, that he cares, that his presence is wide open to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He will minister to you and your heart and your mind in ways that are just unimaginable. Second thing I want to say to us this morning is this. Many people, if not most people, live on the horizontal plane of life. Their lives are controlled by the cultural narrative of the moment. There is, however, a much larger eternal story that has been unfolding over the long ages of history that Christians are discovering, and in discovering, they are finding meaning and purpose to their life, for their existence. And this is indeed what Eden was about. God created humanity in his image for the purpose of communing with him. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, among the many things that happened, they were driven from his presence. Well, when the last Adam came 2,000 years ago, what was broken, what was lost, has been recovered. Let me say it again. What was broken, his presence was barred from us. We were driven like Adam east of Eden. In other words, we were denied access to our Creator and our Redeemer. And when Jesus came, he's restored that. And so, I think, but just on all these many, many years of watching Christians, it seems as if many times Christians have reduced 
Christianity, well, that's where you find forgiveness of sins, and that's in, entirely true. And, and we are forever eternally <coughs> indebted to that. But you have to ask the question, why did Jesus come to forgive us of our sins? And there are multiple answers to that, but the primary answer to that is in order to restore communion with the Father. He came to forgive us so that we can have access back to our dad. And so, uh, without prayer, you'll never know the felt presence of God. So it's an interesting thing, you know, in John 3, you know the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. If you read that closely, look in your margins. Jesus says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, even the son of man who is in heaven. Let me say it again, because this last part's just a marginal reading. It's in many manuscripts, but some translations just leave it out. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, meaning himself, this, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. I want you to think about it just a minute. Here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus, planted on terra firma, and he's saying, no one will ever get into the presence of God, ascended into heaven except he who's descended even now I'm in heaven. In other words, when you are reconciled to Christ, access to the Father is granted to you again. What Leanne and I discovered over a 14-year journey, like Jeff and his illnesses, I went through all the phases. Disappointment, fear, anger, deep, deep, profound anger. God, this is not what I had planned for my life. What are you doing? Don't you know better? This is my son, my, my, my only son, my heir. Don't you understand? And over 14 years, those phases of just walking with the Lord, I got to the place in about year 14 where I just had resigned. Lord, your, your will be done. If I'm going to spend the rest of my life caring for an invalid son, if that's what you're asking of me, then fine, that's what we will do. And then within about the next year of that place of praying diligently and daily, every day, fervently, among the many other things I was learning to pray for, but certainly praying for my son, I was pressing into the throne of grace, drawing near daily, every day, wrestling with God regarding my son. About a year later, we were at UNC Hospital. February of 2020, uh, week before the pandemic broke news, only to discover in hindsight we were actually on the infectious disease floor. They sent my son home uh, with a feeding tube in his lower intestines, and we were largely convinced that he would spend the rest of his, his life, you know, in bed. He had lost his hearing. He had, had to wear eye coverings because he couldn't handle light. I'd just come home from the church every day. I was pastoring at the time, I'd just sit at the foot of the bed and rub his feet, whisper prayers, try to keep him from seeing me cry, you know. Just pray. Just keep praying. About a year later, um, I, I was in the kitchen with Leanne, and I looked up, and of course I'm leaving out a million things, but I looked up, and I saw my son with his little IV pole walking out on the porch. A couple of weeks later, I saw him with his little IV pole walking up to the 
mailbox, which was a pretty steep hill. A few months later, I saw him with his little Ivy pole walking his dog down the street. A few months later, I saw him with his Ivy pole walking up and down where I walked to pray. And months and months later, uh, now my 38-year-old son is not 108 pounds, but 184 pounds. And married, and here's one you can really crap, clap for. Yeah, he gave me my third grandson. Yeah. He is healthy as a horse. From one, 108 to 184, I'd nicknamed him Fatty. I just, hey, Fatty, what's going on, bro? He is a full-time pastor and preciously married. Uh, little Jono, his son's doing great. And the Lord answered that prayer. I gave up a million times, but I just got back up by the grace of God and kept praying, and the Lord answered our prayer. So, Amen. So it's always easy to read the Bible and think about other people. Put your name in there. So the Lord was telling Dennis and Leanne a parable, right? You have to take it that way. Put your name in there. That at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. I think in the end, not losing heart is not going through phases. Not You may be in a particular phase of anger, discouragement, or whatever. It's not the human emotion and response. I cannot control my emotions. As Drew Hamilton found out yesterday as I was whining on the 16th hole. I could not control it. I said, I know you're not interested in my commentary, but I'm playing, you know, I, I deserve to make birdie on that last hole. And then finally I said, I, I don't even like listening to my commentary. And so I just, I cannot control my emotions, but I can control I can control the intention of my focus and ultimately my heart and eventually my emotions follow. Of course you can control your emotions to some degree, but emotions just rise up. I can control the letting it out and anger and all that, I can control that, but I can't control these feelings inside of me. What's so uh, incredible to me is that I did, I walked through a lot of these seasons with Dennis and uh, you know at a certain point you just feel like well I'm resigned to the fact that this may and maybe that would have been the will of God but it wasn't and so this means a lot in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying give me legal protection for my opponent and for a while he was unwilling, but after when he said to himself, said to himself, this unrighteous judge, even though I do not fear God, I don't respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out. In the Greek there, that's, that word is kind of like to strike under the eye. It might have been in Middle Eastern idiom as we discussed last week to say he kind of bruised my reputation, he gave me a black eye or something. We don't know exactly, but that's probably what that meant and then Jesus said hear what the unrighteous judge said now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night 
and will he delay over them long? Now, again, we have to always ask the immediate context. They were concerned that he was going away. He's going to come back. He's talking about there's going to be persecution. There's going to be a return. That's the immediate. But again, I think there's a broader application, and that is just generally our, and that's why this is still around 2,000 years later, don't lose heart. Don't quit. And of course, at the end, Jesus says, I tell you, we'll, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we'll discuss that in closing. So I just want to touch on a few brief points. Last week we talked, if you'll remember, we talked just a little bit about good gifts. The Lord wants to give good gifts. And so you have to remember when you're praying, it may not be a good request. The Lord's into giving good gifts. And we also have to, for what we discussed last week, if you'll remember, we also looked at this issue of he wants continuous dialogue. What is prayer? Prayer is more than just me petitioning God for something. That's one-way monologue. It's also dialogue, and in, through dialogue, we have discovery. We get to discover what God wants us to do. There's a dialogue, but not just do, but just as Dennis alluded to, a re-entering of the garden, the establishment of this beautiful place and this rest. It was the very purpose for which you were created. The question is, it comes with you know, John O, and that's how I'll always know him because I've known him since he was way, way high. My grandson's age now. I mean, that was all those years ago in Houston. First words, some of his first words, golf, golf, golf. You know, just walk around, golf, golf. And now my grandson, he didn't say golf. He says, gah, gah, gah. Every time he comes into my room on Sunday. So was there anything? I mean, there, first of all, we have to also understand as it relates to prayer and waiting because we talked about waiting last week as well in Lamentations 3 it says it's good that we would wait first of all we have to understand we don't understand all that is going on behind the scenes do you understand that do you do you realize that you do not have the full picture of the sovereignty of God and his plans what Dennis failed failed to tell you or didn't tell you I should say was that through this process of being bedridden Jonathan became an an extraordinary theologian would that have happened as a model in Italy somewhere? It could have happened. It might not have happened. I don't know. That's God's sovereign place of knowledge and understanding. But through the process of being bedridden year after year after year after year, I can tell you that Jonathan is an expert theologian. We'll have him here to preach. And I'll lose my job, I know. But the fact of the matter is he's an expert theologian. He is pastoring. He is an expert speaker. Why? His mind is filled with knowledge and wisdom and sound doctrine. Did God have to do that? Couldn't have God just turned his heart away from modeling or whatever, or acting or whatever he might have ended up doing and turned his heart towards a seminar? He could have. But he used this. The point is, I'm not saying that was causative or not. All I know is, looking back with the luxury of retrospect, uh, he is what he is, and it's a good thing. There are things that are happening in the unseen realm, which we talk about a lot here, that we can sometimes just kind of unzip and peek into. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. This was the case with Elijah. He had a 
A guy named Gehazi was a servant, and we know that Gehazi's mind was really set on earthly things. He had failed, he had lied, he had told an untruth to this king Naaman, and we'll go into the story. But all of a sudden, this happened through prayer. Now notice verse 15 of 2 Kings 6. It says, now, when the attendant of the man of God, this was Elisha, not Elijah, the successor to Elijah was Elisha. The man of God who had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. They were in, you talk about losing heart. I always wondered what it would be like if you lived in a time where you didn't have, you know, maps everywhere and global satellites and you just never knew in your little village, you know, thousands of years ago, if somebody might just come up over the, over the horizon with a marauding band and rape your women and kill you and children and take all your stuff and take off. That happened all the time. I just wonder what kind of fear that would have struck in people. Certainly they would have heard stories. They were surrounded. In the scene realm, this side of the zipper, this looks horrible. We're losing heart fast. Are you ready? And the servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? fight go down like you know Sundance or who was it Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid you come out of the corral no one you're going down that's not what he said he said don't fear those who are with us are more than those who are with them and Gehazi looked there's nobody with me there is nobody with us then Elisha prayed it didn't say just Elisha told him, then Elisha prayed. What happens in prayer is that you are unzipping this, this veil between the unseen realm and the seen realm, and God is saying, I'm giving you access now. Why don't you peer in and discover what actually is taking place? That is prayer. Sometimes that could take years to really more fully understand it. It's not just something that's immediate, but just pull, just unzip, and he did for a moment and watch, oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Elisha, now many of you will have learned that in your Sunday school, I hate to age anybody in here, but your felt boards where they put the little things on the felt board and there's Elisha and it's bad and then boom, we're gonna put all these little guys up here, these little angels and chariots of fire and that's the story of Elisha. And, uh, and that's an extraordinary story. Here's point, point three really, we made two last week. Point three is simply this, you don't know everything that's going on. So one of the things that can help you not lose heart is you can admit there are a lot of things that I don't understand, but I trust. Now that's an act of faith to trust. It's an act of sanity to say you don't understand everything, but it's an act of faith to say, but I do know someone whom I connected with who does know everything, and at the appropriate time, he'll fill me in. And that appropriate time might be after I breathe my last. But at some point, somewhere down the road, there will be a moment and it will all come clear. Maybe you don't get an immediate response to prayer where you see chariots of fire all around the mountains. Sometimes you will. Oftentimes you don't. Don't lose heart. There are some things you don't understand. And that is a sane way to view the world around you.
Secondly, you have to understand that God rewards seekers. When we think about seeking, when you, if I ask, tell me something when you really lost something precious to you and you started looking for it, the story usually does not go, Lord, help me find that. Oh, there it is. It was in my hand. Well, that may be the case for some of us, but, you know, oh, it's right here on my forehead. I, uh, you know, but usually seeking involves, and we saw it, and we saw it, and we looked, and Jesus told some parables about this, sweeping the floor, looking for the lost coin, all these kinds of things. Seeking can involve a day, an hour, a year. I mean, it can just, seeking is incredible, but oftentimes seeking also involves waiting to find it, but to not lose heart. Now, you have to understand, this is a faith issue. We often pray and pray and pray, and then, you know, we've prayed, Lord, and I've been praying for, you know, three and a half minutes, and I'm ready for this to be resolved. And then it's three and a half weeks and three and a half years and maybe even three and a half decades. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Why? Here's what God loves, Hebrews 11:6. Many of you know this verse. It's a well-known verse. Without faith, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things we just can't see. Zzz, prayer allows us sometimes to begin to see more than we could if we were just looking at the external circumstances. Faith is without it, it's impossible to please him because he who comes to God must do two things, believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Why does God make us seek? Why can't he just give it to us instantly? Did you do that with your kids? Do you do that with your grandkids or do you? Wives, do you actually do that with your husbands? No, I shouldn't use that. But you get, you get my point. There's, there's purpose in waiting. It is good that they waited upon the Lord. Things are happening on the inside of you that you cannot imagine. Or things are occurring that God is moving some pieces around in his cosmic display of sovereignty that need to be moved into position. He's going to give you a little bit of a foretaste through prayer, but he's going to begin to prepare you through prayer so that two years, three years, four years from now, you might actually be prepared to be that peace in his cosmic unfolding of all redemptive history, but it required your participation in prayer before it ever happened. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek. Not only do you have to believe, you've got to believe that he's going to reward you at some point, at some place. That is a hope that rings. It's such a piece of useful uh, weaponry in my battle against my own brain. He's done. He's never going to, this is never going to end. I'm going to be like this forever. No, he's a rewarder of those who dil diligently seek him. Did you know, interestingly enough, that God actually delights in your prayers? I think mean, sometimes you may say, well, I don't know. What was it? What was it? AT&T, your commercial in the old days, just reach out. Do you know how much the Lord or whatever that was, Bell, I don't know how Bell would like, just reach out. The Lord wants you to just reach out. Listen to this. 
Proverbs chapter 15, verse eight. The sacrifice of the wicked, well, that's an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. He delights in you reaching out. I have met so many, and especially men. I've done a lot of men's ministry over the last number of decades. So many men that say, I really don't pray because then I really don't ask God because I think he's got so much else to do. God is omniscient, omnipresent. He is all, he stays at the Omni Hotel. I mean, he's got it all figured out. I'm just telling you, he's got time. He just reach out. He delights in your prayer. He, del- he loves it when you go out on a cold day and take a walk and just to teach me about prayer, talk to me. That was dialogue that Dennis was talking about. Teach me about prayer is not just pray for Bob's shoulder. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not, that's just the tip of the iceberg as it relates to prayer. He, was, he delights in this communication. Again, the very purpose for which you were created. He didn't create you just to run around and not do a lot of things that would make you happy. Yes, most people view the Bible that way. It's an absurd way to view the Bible. It's just not the story. It's not the story at all. So last thing here. Uh, I want to read this uh, especially as it relates to the eternal world. This is, I, I, I enjoy reading the Puritans. Sometimes it can get a little bit challenging, but the Valley of Vision, listen to what it says. I live here as a fish in a vessel of water only enough to keep me alive. But in heaven I shall swim in the ocean. Here I have a little air in me to keep me breathing, and, but there I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness, a warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder I shall live in light and warmth forever. These are things that keep me in the game, keep me not to just hang on, don't quit, hang in there, please don't stop. Trust that you don't see everything, trust that waiting can be good, trust that I delight in you reaching out, trust that I wanna give you good things and the thing you're asking for me is not good or it's good but it's not yet. All these things we just have to grapple with in our minds, trusting that at some point we're gonna see all things as they really are but we only get little fragments of the reality of the eternal kingdom that we will one day swim in the ocean. Right now, I've got fish in my house and they go in these little bowls and I said, I just don't know how they can do that. I mean, they just kind of swim around, bump into each other and wait for you to put something out there. And sometimes I even tease them like I'm putting stuff in there. And my, I get, my wife comes in and I get in big trouble for that. But you know, this is like in a little bowl. I mean, it's like, yeah, swim around, swim around all day. It's in some ways that, that relates to our experience here. It feels that way anyway, but the Lord wants, wants you to know that he, well, he wants you to reach out. He wants you to reach out. Lastly, in the end of our lives, well, uh, really, our, our reflections of our interaction with God, I think that's fair to say. As we had our staff meetings the other day, we were talking about, you know, Louis Greer, who's here from Arizona, he said, I got some of the greatest insight I've gotten uh, in my entire ministry. He said, I worked so hard to get these fellowships going and this and that, and then I had a friend who I, who I actually know named Todd, and Todd told, he says, here what you need to do, you need to go pray for leaders, pray for leaders. And he said, well, that's kind of simple. <laughs> All right, well, why not? What could it hurt, you know? Lewis was a pastor at one point too. He says, what could it hurt, you know? <laughs> 
So I prayed for leaders. And then Lewis said, almost immediately, someone calling me from here. And then Anthem and this and that. And people just started coming out of the woodwork. You know, pray. Hey, hey, I want to I I do this. Not, hey, hey, could you do this? Might you want to do this? I mean, people just coming out. It's like prayer. Oh, what a novel thought. But in some ways, ministry, the Church of the Red Door, your personal lives are going to be a reflection of your interaction with God, period. Dennis has driven that into me deeply as he talks about his walks because I also tend to just get busy and going and going and going and going. And sometimes I just, not sometimes, all the times to get away and reach out to discover God's next move for me and to be refreshed. And I enjoy his presence. I really do. It's really something that Jesus modeled. In the end, it's you reap what you sow. We know this Galatians 6, 8, 9. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit, part of sowing to the Spirit is the Word, it's community, but it's very often very much centered in prayer. From the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we, we will reap if we don't grow weary. Uh, there's a promise in this. Don't quit. Hang in there. Hang in there. Hang in there. David McIntyre says this, as we present ourselves before the Lord in prayer, well, we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We yield to the inward impulse and the divine energy commands our being. Our plans, if we, well, if we form them at the dictation of nature, are laid aside. In other words, just natural course of this world, here are my plans. I'm gonna retire, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna eat at this kind of restaurant, I'm gonna drive this kind of car. These are my plans. Sometimes prayer says lay that aside. Here's what I'm calling you to do. It said if we form them at the dictation of nature or laid aside and the purpose of God in relation to our lives is accepted and we're spirit born. Let us be spirit controlled. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And walking in the Spirit is easy to talk about, but it really necessarily involves interaction with your Creator, and that's what we call prayer. So in conclusion, I wanna just quickly deal with this last thing. Why does then Jesus say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And why did he do it in the context of a relentless, unyielding, you know, prayer life? What, what is it? Uh, wh why did he do that? Why did he add that? And what does that mean? I've thought a lot about that. In fact, I had one of our precious Lynn Ferris sent me a little email and she said, you know, how do you really work through that? And because of her prompting, I had kind of some thoughts that I had about it, but I wanted to think more deeply about it. And I, I think it's simply this. And, I, and, I, and I, this, is a, this is my takeaway from this. He's speaking to his disciples. He says, when I return, I've just told you what an unceasing prayer life is. And as we all know, it's easy to get someone to come to a meeting with In-N-Out Burgers. And it's another thing to get people to come to a prayer meeting. Now, if I have any pastors in here, you can say amen to that. You know, we tried that. Nobody showed up. Well, we got a couple, you know, little gals in the back that like to pray and all that kind of thing. But it's hard. Prayer, prayer life is hard. It just is. It's not natural to sit there or walk or do anything and just talk and then not hear anything come back. And the women said, I do that with my husband all the time. I'm used to that. And I think that's why women are so, such good prayers. They're used to nobody responding to them when they're talking. 
But uh, I'm just kidding. That's not you church at the Red Door people. Not at all. You husbands love your wives. You listen to everything they say. You pay attention. And then you do exactly what they say because happy wife, happy life. Anyway, you know the story. But how, what does this mean? And I think he's talking here to the disciples. And here's, here's my takeaway. My takeaway is I've just told you how to pray. And if you live this kind of prayer life, this kind of spirit-led engagement with the creator in the unseen realm, and you don't lose hope, then when the Son of Man comes back, he will find faith on the earth. You're laying the foundation for generations after you. And I believe that with all my heart. So I take it both as corporately and also individually. I get really excited when I see this and I go, I've been through a lot now, decades of walking with Jesus and I still have my faith. And it's encouraging when I hear that. But then I think of other people and I think they lost their faith. They completely abandoned the church. They don't go anymore. They lost all hope. Something happened in their life. And I think, so it's all both individually, but I think he's also encouraging the disciples as he would encourage us Today, will Jesus, when he comes, and he will come back. When he comes back, will he find faith on the earth? How will he find faith on the earth? When we walk in our calling. I've said many times, you know, this is so challenging, this building this church and, and the land, and that was challenging, and year after year, and waiting, and we got to practice all this. We had really done practice prayer, right? And, and just pray and pray. Now we have the land and this, and how are we ever going to get the money to build a building and all? I just, I don't know. Here's what I do know. If we get that building built, there will be generations, maybe two, three, year, two, three four year generations down the road, that that'll be significant. We don't understand everything. We're doing it because we feel spirit-led. But at some point, if that is an edifice to the glory of Jesus, and it's entrenched, and there's still vision to reach this valley and therefore reach the world, world will he find faith I think so I think so not just because of the building but because of a culture and a spirit in you I mean I want Jesus to come back and find faith and then I want him to turn to me and us both Lynx family, Church of the Red Door family, Fellowship Christian Athlete family, Mama's House, Coachella Valley Rescue Mission family, Narrow Door family, all the different families that are represented here and the outposts that we have and say Jesus came back and he found faith on the earth because I was faithful. Well, he was really even more faithful than me even when I, but I never lost hope. I think that's why Jesus finishes with will he find faith. I think that was a catalyst in the disciples' mind, yes, he will find faith. We're gonna tell the story. We're gonna lay down our lives. We're gonna give everything so that when Jesus comes back, he's gonna find faith because he just told us how we could do that. But he didn't say it was gonna be easy. The rough and tumble world that we live in, let me tell you something. You think it's easy to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, I hesitate sometimes. I never hesitate to talk about Jesus. But to say you're a preacher or minister or something, you know, how's this person going to take this? I mean, it's just not a, it's not a very fancy thing to do. We're marginalized now, and that's okay. I don't mind that. Jesus was marginalized. But we have to go into a hurting world, and we say, yes, he will find faith when he comes back. But we must hear him speak.